everyone watching this show right now is dealing with some sort of evil in their lives. The majority of them has some sort of crutch. The smart people flock to exercise, healthy relationships, building a career around themselves. Unfortunately, at 17 years old, I made a split second decision to try a drug that was so powerful and so addictive that I signed my life away for the next 10 years after that. And at this time, I was a fucking psychopath, dude. I started punching the fucking window with my bare hand trying to smash the fucking window. And I opened the door and there was a kid with a double barrel shotgun pointed at me. Like my brain said, this dude is the dude that pulls the trigger. They brought me into the emergency room. They cut a massive cut down my entire abdomen, fractured my skull. I woke up in a pool of blood with my foot right here next to my head. I'll never forget having doctors feed tubes down my nose into my throat while I was awake, into my stomach to suck blood out of my stomach. Throwing up all over myself, shitting all over the place, shaking, crying, sweating. I was dying, dude. I fucking knew it. I was probably 21 when I died to my mom. There are so many addicts out there right now and so many people dealing with mental health problems and hopelessness in this world that have lost their fucking light, dude. This is all their life is ever gonna be. A drug addict living under a bridge. They've accepted it 100% and that is the reason I wrote this fucking book because I don't want anybody out there to accept that that is their fucking legacy. Yeah, welcome back to the True Jody podcast, everyone. We've got Mike Malak today. And uh, I don't usually do YouTuber interviews anymore, as you know. Like, for guys like us, you know, we've had a lot of life, bro. And uh, it can be quite like... So you started making videos at 18, you became a millionaire. Well, that's interesting. Whereas for me and you, it's been a fucking ride before we've even got into YouTube. And that's why I think we get on. Yeah, absolutely, dude. I mean, that's that was one of the things I actually struggled with when we started on Impulsive. Was uh, it's like it's like there's only so much I could talk to people about when it comes to when it comes to the entertainment world and like what happens on YouTube because it's such a bubble, bro. Like there's so mm. much there's so much shit that has happened and that continues to happen in the world outside of this little bubble that we've been so graciously uh, able to live in. And um, and so yeah, I, c I can completely relate to that. It's uh. It, it, it the the ride before this ride like like when i wrote this book people were like oh i, I wonder if he's going to talk a lot about you know his time with logan or if he's going to talk about dating a porn star if he's going to talk about all this bullshit meeting this person hanging out with that person there's two chapters on that out of 35 chapters everything in that book is before i don't want i don't mm. want to talk to people about the luxurious shit nobody i i don't even want to talk about that i want to talk about how to get out of the fucking spot you're in right now you know what i'm saying and there's a lot of people out there that are that are waking up every day suffering and that's that's who this book is for and that's that's what i want to talk about and i feel like when i shouted you out in the book i feel like that's something that you resonate with that's something bradley martin reson resonates with banks adam 22 yeah. you know what i'm saying like the re I, I wanted to bring all I ever wanted to do on this fucking channel is bring the real back to YouTube, yo. Like, that's it. That's it. I want I want real fucking people, bro, that have real stories and people can relate to. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and when you when you said that about me in the, in the book, like, you know, you put me in next to some guys who I respect as well. Like, they're all good guys making grown man content, which is like... Yeah. It's so rare, you know, for like... I always looked at Joe Rogan as the guy... Like, he is the the one on his own. And then you got his, like, uh, the new breed coming through. And we're all trying to, like, make our own version of our own grown man content. But I really respected that and appreciated that, mate. 
Yeah, Honestly, bro. Thanks. I mean, I had to, I had to throw you in there, man. We've we've gotten to chop it up a couple times, you know, once in the UK and other times on on these kind of video chats and phone calls and stuff like that. And obviously, you know, it's the thing about the thing about authenticity and and real people is real respects and and recognizes real immediately. Like I mm. needed one minute of your time to be like, yo, I fuck with this dude, and mm. I always will. You know what I'm saying? And so like. We'll always have that. Like I'll, I'll always be here for shit you need. I know you'll mm -hmm. vice versa. And um, and so when I was writing my acknowledgments for the book, yo, I had to shout out the people that I, I call it carrying the torch. So let's get right into the shit, bro. You have made a book all about how hard life was before YouTube, and and uh, and I think that's part of why you're so. I guess when you know the real laws of life. The the trivial shit that we get thrown into in YouTube, it, it, it you you take it for what it is, and you're not phased by it. Like with me, with all the shit I've had, you know, there's a reason you and I can handle scandal so well because it is nothing compared to real life. Um, most people who end up becoming serious drug users can remember that first time where they got high as fuck. Can you remember that? Absolutely, time? man. Absolutely. I can paint it for you. I can paint a picture. Go for it. So so it wasn't the very first time that I tried uh, opiates because I was given, uh, in, in our country here in America, we have one pill that is responsible for the entire epidemic. Okay. One brand. It's almost like Coca-Cola was the only soda. We have a drug mm. here called Oxycontin produced by a, a company called Purdue Pharma in Stanford, Connecticut. That one drug, one pill, is responsible for the opiate epidemic that we're seeing right now. It is the most powerful painkiller of all time. When I broke my femur, I, I broke my femur in half, the biggest bone in my body. I was skiing and I went off a jump and I landed, I fractured my skull. I woke up in a pool of blood with my foot right here next to my head. I looked over and that was the last thing I saw was my ski boot next to my head right here. And when I got to the hospital in Vermont, the first thing they gave me was a small cup with a pill in it, and it was a 20 milligram Oxycontin. And that was the first time I had Oxy. And everything in my body, every pain, every uh, beginning of anxiety that I was starting to feel, every you know little depression in my life faded away. <laughs> and there was no more pain, there was no more trouble. But I was also in a traumatic I was also in a traumatic environment, and that was my first try of it. But the first time where I had all my senses and I was really able to feel and understand it was a day after my uh, a day after school I was a, a a junior in high school in Milford Connecticut on, on the East Coast about 45 minutes from New York City I was with my friend and he had already started doing them and he had this one pill and I saw people doing pills all the time like they would you know pop a Percocet a Vicodin the lower pills and I saw him break this pill up and he offered me a line and I did this tiny, tiny little line. It was tw it was 20 milligrams and I sniffed it. And I'd already been smoking weed. I'd already been doing that stuff. I'd tried it with my friends. I was, you know, peer pressure, whatever you want to call it. And that day, when I did that first line of Oxycontin, I was never going to go back. That was it. It was over. It was. I was weightless. I had absolutely not a single care in the world. All of my anxieties my stresses my thoughts about my mom and dad beating each other up my thoughts about myself not being good enough and my self-doubt and all the things that have existed in me since i was a kid went out the window immediately and they were completely gone and uh you know there's a lot of conversation in the world about addiction being a disease versus being a choice that the person makes and 
Um, I like to think that it's a little bit of both. Um, I made a really, really bad decision that day, but unfortunately, I made that decision because of other things that I had going on in my life. Mm. People, people discount the mental health of the drug addict. Mental mm. health and, and drug addiction are so intertwined that I made that decision that day because of things that were wrong with me. And just to add, Mike, uh, not, not just about mental health is one word, but also life is fucking hard. You know, and sometimes for some people, life is really fucking hard. So for the regular guy who goes to the pub because he's had a fucking hard day at work and he just wants to fucking forget all of his stresses about paying the bills and the family and can I put my kid through college and all of these regular life problems. Why is he getting drunk? Probably because of that. But for some people, they have an experience like you did where, you know, life is really hard on top of that. You've got this gateway to escape that and you and sometimes it's so fucking hard people don't want to come back for a very long time i think people forget that sometimes as well yeah absolutely and jo- and actually joe joe was talking about this on his show yesterday on, on the last episode he put out i mean it, it, it's tough like you said i mean people are people are everyone watching this show right now everyone watching me and you talk to each other is dealing with some sort of evil in their lives they're dealing with Mm. some sort of stressor in their lives the majority of them or or every single one of them maybe has some sort of crutch unless unless they're perfect has some sort of crutch Mm. to deal with it the smart people flock to exercise healthy relationships uh work uh, building a career around themselves unfortunately at 17 years old I made a, a, a split-second decision to try a drug that was so powerful and so addictive that I signed my life away for the next 10 years after that. And so it, it's it's uh, it's just an unfortunate circumstance. And, and listen, like I have no problem saying that addicts or, or people who get hung up in, or stuck in drug addiction made a bad choice. I have no problem saying that. The problem I find is when people say that, and don't have the empathy to say, and now we need to help that fucking person get out. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. because writing people off because they made a bad choice, every single person in this fucking world has made a bad choice. Every person in the world has made a bad choice. And if that one choice took a decade of your life away, and I'm lucky, I'm, a, I'm the luckiest of all the addicts, bro, because of where I am mm-hmm. now, and I worked my ass off to get here, but I'm so lucky. A lot of other people made one bad choice because I know three, four, five of them and I hear about another one every fucking day. But I knew a bunch personally make that one bad choice and choke to death on vomit in the backseat of a fucking car the first time they tried doing drugs. And so, yeah, like people made a bad choice. They, they tried to run away from their problems. They tried to find a little bit of relief that other people were finding around them, whatever it was. But is that choice supposed to be a death sentence? Absolutely fucking not. I love the way you speak about this, mate. I, uh, I, as someone who's been affected by um, this sort of thing, not personally, but uh, my cousin, who was like my little brother, died of an overdose uh, when he was 23. And I really think it's great the way you're speaking, how brutally honest you're being about this in your book and stuff. Uh, and for those who haven't uh, checked it out already, you have to go and get the fifth vital. Um, we've seen how it started. Where did it go to spiral from there because like we all can imagine you take one you realize fuck me this feels better than reality right now but how quickly did it spiral with oxy it's fast man because when so the way the the epidemic happened in america purdue 
Pharma knowingly overmarketed and oversaturated the market with this drug. This is the most powerful painkiller to ever have been created. It was supposed to originally be for terminally, terminally ill cancer patients so that they could get out of bed. They're about to die in two weeks. They pop this one pill, it makes them not feel pain for the next two fucking days. Yeah. And it had a time release seal on it that was supposed to leak the narcotics out over a short period of time. As soon as it hit the streets and got out of that first grandmother's cabinet, whoever that patient zero was, People on the streets found a way to take that seal off the pill. And so we would stick them in our mouths and we would suck the seal off the pill. And that would allow us to then crush the pill and sniff it. As soon as we started doing that, it coincided perfectly with Purdue aggressively marketing the drug. And so by the time I was 17 years old, it was everywhere. My, my, I, there was a high percentage of my graduating class in high school that was addicted to Oxycontin and heroin by the time we were 18 years old. I watched, I watched my friends every single day in high school sniff Oxys off the desk behind books while the teacher taught the class. If we didn't have Oxy to go to school, sometimes we would go for a couple periods until we started withdrawing. So, so the oversaturation of the drug, once we tried it, then like, the, so the first time I tried it, about two weeks later, I tried it again. I'm like, oh, that was fun. I'll do it again at a party. Then after the second time, it was like a week later. Then after the fourth time, it was like two days later. And then it was a day later. Right. And then before I knew it, if I didn't have it, I couldn't go outside of my house because I was withdrawing because I was, I was an addict. And it happened, bro, it happened so fast without any signs. And we looked at it just like a pill. The thing about OxyContin is it bridged a gap between the drugs that people experiment with and heroin. We had never seen that bridge before, it didn't exist. There was all these drugs over here and then there was heroin. It bridged yeah. the gap completely. And so it happened, it happened really fast and uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not blaming anyone else for it at all. Like it was, it was, it was my doing, but unfortunately, you know, in my, in my youth, I, I, I stood no chance. It rolled over me like a wrecking ball. Yeah, you were a child, man. Like, fuck me. Can you remember the first time anyone actually realized that there was something wrong with you in terms of Mike's not not something not right there. Can you remember? It was my mom, and my, so I, I don't know if you've, you know how much you've read or how much you know of the story so far. But my mom has been an is an integral part, and every time I talk about her, I start to get a little uh, emotional about it. I don't blame you, mate. I don't blame you. We all love our moms. She was the probably the first person that spotted it. But we, I had spotted it in my friends first in, in school. And so, like, it's, it's all the classic signs, the, the, the dilated pupils, you know, like, just, just, it, it, there were zombies walking around my high school. You know what I'm saying? It was so clear cut that there was a problem. And uh, unfortunately, when, in 2003, when I was in high school, there was no program to deal with this shit. There was no action response team for the fact that your entire school is addicted to opiates bro and now we have those things and we have you know overdose life-saving devices at all the schools like we're tw you know we're 20 years into this epidemic now and people are starting to do things but do things properly but when i was in high school we had none of that shit dude like we were we were the first victims of this fucking plague it was like it was like being in fucking wuhan at the onset of the coronavirus no one knew shit Everybody was like, yo, what the fuck? People are dying everywhere. When it first started happening, they were bringing refrigerated trucks to the hospitals to keep the bodies in because they couldn't keep up with the amount of people who were dying of overdoses. 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people just dying everywhere, bro. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's continued to happen since then with, with heroin and then fentanyl now. But um, I would say probably my mom was one of the first person people that noticed that something was, was going drastically wrong. But by that point, it was too late. It was too late. I'm, I'm sure that the people around you who loved you are trying their best to, you know, like... I'm sure they were screaming at you at some point and just doing everything they could. But, you know, like your mother wouldn't have been blessed with the, like you say, the, the whatever you're supposed to do in these circumstances. Like she doesn't know. So what were those interactions like? Can you even remember them? I mean, I, like the conversations that we had, like when they, when I was, when she was trying to yeah. talk to me. Were you in denial the whole time or did you admit that you had a problem? Oh, no, I didn't. I mean, I denied. I mean, that's, that's the classic addict behaviors to not, to yeah. deny a problem. And, and, um, you know, I, I hit it pretty well for, for a while, but you know, my mom had to deal with me using drugs, but also me selling drugs. And that, that's another massive part of my story and, and something I obviously dramatically regret and, and drastically, you know, wish didn't happen, but I did what I did to support my own addiction. And, um, she, she would catch me selling drugs. Cause I would go, I would leave the house at night to sell pills to people. And, uh, we would get, we would have all we would have massive blowouts. I mean, I was I was living on the streets, you know, for a couple of weeks at a time since I was se since I was seventeen all the way until I you know went to rehab. I mean, she would kick, she tried everything. You know, she at first parents try to love harder and they say, oh maybe if I and they blame themselves. What did I do wrong? Did I not hug them enough? Did I not tell them I loved them? It was what could I have done better? And eventually, they have to understand that it's not them it's it's the addict you know what i'm saying they have to unfortunately take that tough love route and so my mom tried really hard at first to help me help me help me but eventually us addicts cause so much harm to our families and loved ones that they have to fucking pull the plug dude they have to it's 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 i mean i people were coming and throwing cinder blocks through my mom's windows you know what i'm saying like over mm. drug beefs over over debts whatever right and eventually like she had to uh she had to you know let me go off and 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 battle this on my own that must be so helpless for her like the worst the worst feeling in the world man yeah. the worst feeling in the world I, I i have a whole uh paragraph at the end of the book about it's a message to the to the families of uh, of of the sufferers and honestly like that like you're you're one of those people that i addressed in that story you know in, in that mm. paragraph like like knowing someone that is or has or, or 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 is you know struggling with addiction or has overdosed is one of the most helpless feelings you could ever have in this entire world dude like it's like watching someone that you imagine me dude like my dad coached all my basketball games bro like i had friends that were i was in the gifted program in fourth grade i was gonna be i, I should have been going on to be a doctor or a lawyer bro i was one of the smartest kids in my fucking school dude i scored super high on my sats i was i was should have been that fucking kid mm -hmm. my parents raised me they did everything perfect my sad two sisters innocent sisters who were be beautiful girls and they had to watch as i just gave everything away and 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 just started walking this zombie yeah. path towards a coffin bro because that's where i was it going i was gonna die so much it reminds me so much of my cousin because uh my cousin was a, a very like you like yourself very talented very smart handsome kid like anything he put his hands up like anything he picked up he was a master of 
and um, he fucking was younger than me. He learned to ride a bike before me. You know, he was just that kind of kid. And I remember having a chat with him about two years before he died. And you get you get serious, like you know. I, I'm I'm thinking I need to frighten him. I need to. I'm fucking. You better fucking listen to me. You know, like I'm really giving him that that deep serious shit. And uh, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? Like, what, what, what kind of, like, it's just, it feels like you're banging your head against a brick wall. And when I got the call to say he was dead, I was like, well, the other person on the end of the phone, I'm like, drug overdose. And they were like, what, what? I went, well, he hasn't died in a fucking car crash, has he? Tell me. Yeah. It was a drug overdose, wasn't it? I knew. And it's just like, like what your family were probably doing, you're, they're bracing themselves for the worst because they're just like, what the fuck do we do? Like there is, and, and I'm sure that there are things that, you know, probably exist now because of all this shit that you've been going through, but at times people just don't know what to do. Shit, yeah. Yeah, My it, it was the same story. I mean, my mom, I was probably 21 when I died to my mom. You know what I'm saying? Mm. I mean, she 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 moved. She did four years, five years of grieving over my death before I before I got clean. You know what I'm saying? I wow. mean, it's it's just she would spend the entire night. And my mom at the at the time, you know, fresh out of a fucking divorce. Kids are gone now. The girls are gone. My older sister was at college. My little sister was getting ready to leave the house, and she was just alone, dude. Like she was just alone every night, waiting by the phone for Milford mm. police to call and say, "Yo, you're." You know, we're sorry to tell you your son's is dead. He overdosed on on oxycon or heroin or whatever. And uh, she she was she was ready for it. She was ready for it. I think we both were. I think we both were. I I I had accepted that fact as well too. You know what I'm saying? That 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 uh, this was the way life was gonna go. And I th I think that that's the thing about being that long term addict. Cause cause you know there are some people. I I think the amount of time you spend in addiction dictates the rate of success and and man when you get to that five year seven year marker of waking up every single day with not a single other thing on your mind except finding a way to not to not be sick and to not die that day it takes a piece of your soul it takes a piece of your soul you know what i'm saying and and mm. it does that to the people watching as well it does that to the people around you. The, the collateral damage that you leave behind as an addict is is the family members, is the loved ones that watch you every single day fade away um, in, and lose everything that you, you had, you know? And it's, the, it's one of the saddest things ever in the entire world. It's one of the, it truly is heartbreaking to see someone that you grew up with 10 15 years into a drug addiction it, it is mm -hmm. a it is a tragic tragic oh, fucking dude thing. my my uncle i probably shouldn't say this but i don't give a fuck <laughs> my, like i've got an uncle right now a fucking zombie like a fucking zombie i don't even know like if if i was him i'd rather be dead yeah you know it's like it's that bad i'm like there's just no point in this guy existing. Yeah, you know what I, I mean? mean? Like, what what the fuck do you do? Do you like section him? Do what? Like, the, he is so brain dead from the level of drug use for thirty years now. Even if he got clean, he's never coming back, man. He's gone. You know what I mean? So my my story, having been through eight years of addiction, it's hmm. crazy for me. It's mind blowing for me to imagine what 30 years looks like and there's mm. and there's people that are even beyond that i mean when i just told you a few minutes ago that i had started to accept my own 
uh, demise and my mother had done the same. Yeah. Luckily in both of us, I'll speak for myself, I reserved a little bit of fucking hope, dude. Just a little bit of fucking hope. The entire time that I went through my addiction, I had just a little light that was so fucking dim at the end. It was so small. But what was that voice saying, though? What's that? What was that voice saying to you? Keep going. Keep going. Uh. Keep going. It's, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. You're going to make it through this. You're not going to fucking die. And honestly, that may have come from all the accidents that I got in and all the traumas where I was laying in ICU and they were, I'll never forget multiple times having doctors feed tubes down my nose into my throat while I was awake, into my stomach to suck blood out of my stomach. Or, 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 or having them lift my, my foot away from, you know, up here and straightening it out for a snowmobile ride down a mountain so that they could put it in traction so they could put a metal rod through my femur to put my leg back together. When I was, when I was in my worst days, I remembered those things. And there's this, there's this burning desire in every single one of us in those times of terror and fright and, and hopelessness that says, keep fucking going. Don't give up. Don't fucking give up. And I kept that little piece of hope in me through the really dark times when I, I was I, I knew for sure that I was I was going down that road towards the end. And that was what got me through. The problem is, is that doesn't exist in every addict. There are so many addicts out there right now and so many people dealing with mental health problems and hopelessness in this world that have lost their fucking light, dude. They've accepted it 100% that this is it. This is all their life is ever going to be. A drug addict living under a bridge. And one day they're going to find him face down and they're dead. And that's it. And that's their legacy. They've accepted that. And that is the reason I wrote this fucking book. And that's the reason why I talk about this shit. Because I don't want anybody out there to accept that that is their fucking legacy. That do- I'm not okay with that. And nobody should be okay with that. Ever. Ever, dude. And so I kept going. I'm glad that that was your opinion, mate. I really am. Otherwise, we wouldn't. You wouldn't be here right now, clearly. Or I um, would. Or I would, but I'd be a zombie still. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah, I got homies. Yeah, I have homies yeah. right now still. The kids that I wrote about in this book, my three best friends that I grew up with, that I learned how to ride bikes with, that I had my, that I went to our first dance at, you know, with them next to me and our girls, and we were 12 years old, and the fr- I, the only, the kid I went to every Knicks game with, and and. He called me. I haven't talked to him in five years. He's, you know, he's he's in a ninety day rehab now, but and I hope it works out for him. But he's he's been be- for the ten years now that I grew out of it. He's been doing the same shit. You know what I'm saying? And and mm-hmm. it's it's painful, bro. It's painful. And and he and once again, he's he's lucky as fuck too because there's four people that I talk about in that book that I went and buried. You know what I'm saying? And so it's it's. It's nasty shit, man, but it's it's it, no matter how far in you are, if you're 30 years an addict, 40 years an addict, 50 years, whatever it is, you I, I I need people to keep fucking going, bro, and just and find a way to crawl out of it, dude. When you were taking uh, oxycotton, w- w- did you also take heroin as well? I mean, I know they're very similar, but so yeah, did so, you move to heroin? Yeah, so that's the that's the that's the beauty. <laughs> of the opiate epidemic story. And I, I barely touched on the epidemic that much in the book and how exactly it happened. But basically what happened is eventually 
Purdue Pharma couldn't couldn't uh, get away from the the fact of the matter anymore, which was that they were killing everyone. That mm. that people were becoming drug addicts, and so what they did was they quickly removed the drug from the market. And what do you think happens when you have? Two, three, five, ten million Oxycontin addicts in the United States, and you take their drug away. They're gonna go to the streets and they're gonna find whatever else is gonna make them fucking feel better, yeah. not sick, not mentally ill, whatever. And so what happened was in the in the mid 2010 area or early 2000s, you just saw a fucking skyrocket of heroin use in the United States, and mm. and everybody couldn't get their pills anymore, so they went to the next thing, and and that's exactly what happened with me when. Probably in 2006, 2007, when we could, we started not being able to get pills anymore and we were all completely addicted and completely dependent on the drugs. Um, one day I was on the phone with a kid and I was begging him, yo, please, like I can't get anything from my connect. You got to help me. And he said, well, I just got some D in Bridgeport. And I said, what What the fuck is D? And he was talking about heroin. And, and um, that was the first time that I had heard that heroin was starting to sneak in and um, probably about a couple months after that, somebody in, in Bridgeport, which is a very bad inner city area near where I was born, um, offered me a line of heroin and I was sick and I took it and that was, and then I was off to the races. Did you ever inject it? So this, this isn't in the book. This is actually exclusive and I, I don't know why I left it out, but, um, because I put everything in this book. There wasn't one thing that I left out, but this was left out. I did inject heroin and cocaine one time. Mm. On the same day, I was sitting in my friend's basement, and he he had you know everybody was always talking about clean needles, and he had clean needles, and and honestly, like, I didn't give a fuck about life at this point. Like I didn't care yeah. about anything. I didn't care. I didn't even give a shit if I fucking died. I was so hopeless. I didn't care about anything. And um, I was like, all right, fuck it, whatever. And I, I always I tell this story. I tried it, and it was like something in my brain said. If you do this again after today, it is the same exact thing as putting a gun to your head and pulling the fucking trigger. Don't, and, and it, I should have, I wish I had tr said that to myself the first time. But for whatever reason, my brain said, yo. And people were like, how was it? Was it different? Was it better? And I say, if I had done it again, I would have been off to the races and I might as well have just, I might as well have just given up at that point. Because so that, that, did that scare you a bit? Scared the fuck out of me. Scared why, the why, fuck What was out the feeling me. like when you did that? It was, I mean, whereabouts on your body did you inject this? In my arm. All right. Yep. And what it, was the, what was that feeling like for you? It was just, I mean, very, I mean, and I don't know why I reserved this when I talked about smoking crack years later. It's basically the same thing. It's, it's. How do you take, like crack is how do you take cocaine and, and exponentially make it more effective? Mm -hmm. Using heroin intravenously is, it's actually not the most effective way because putting, because rectally is probably the most effective way, but nobody's wow. putting drugs in their asshole. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, intravenous use is the, is the most effective mode of transportation for the drug to get to your, your brain. It goes directly into, into your bloodstream. And right. so it's just, Everything that you had known about the drug, uh, exponentially more uh, effective and more m f hits you faster, hits you harder, and is more concentrated. And for that reason, it, that's the same reason why uh, it gets that much harder to break a habit with it. Mm. Like, look at your ability to break your habit with something getting exponentially harder based on how much you fucking love it. 
Right. If you find something that you love so much that's unhealthy, if you find something you love even more that's unhealthy, you're going to have a harder time getting away from that. And I knew that was going to happen, and I watched everyone around me shooting up, all of my friends. Everybody had moved to intravenous, intravenous use. Girls girls that were prom queens, bro. Pro, like b volleyball players for the, for the team. And then, you know, they tried drugs a couple times, and then they were shooting heroin. And um, well, I watched it happen all around me. And so yeah, I tried it one time, and and I and I knew that was gonna be that that was gonna be end end of me. And so I went back to uh, sniffing after that. And so I, I I sniffed everything and absolutely destroyed my fucking nose. And by the way, that might is probably part of the reason why my voice is raspy and everybody knows my voice. You you so you were paying for this from drug dealing a lot of the time. You know you're you're obviously changing the crew who you were hanging around with at school as well to a degree. I'm sure that. Your, your circle changes as well with this. And uh, speaking to someone who's mixed with all kinds of people in the past, um, what was it like at that point when you're, you're funding it? Like, how, how far were you willing to go? Because you're a good guy, and you've got morals, and you care about people. We all know this about you now. Absolutely. But in order to sell drugs to someone and to see this person that you're giving the drug to get, in the states that they're getting in you got to cut off emotionally you got to think selfishly were you able to do that how, how did you reason that yeah i mean i 100 percent did that i was a um i like to consider myself a dealer with morals <laughs> yeah is if that makes any sense here i wasn't in the habit of you know beating people i wasn't in the habit of of beating the shit out of people it happened a lot of times obviously where we had to do that but it wasn't something that I was a was a, a fan of doing. And I also never wanted to be someone who put someone onto a drug for the first time. It was a very important thing to me. And I know people looking in will say, well, you know, what is that fucking bullshit? Like, you're still a scumbag. And I'm, I, I'm willing to take whatever abuse people, you know, throw at me. Um, but there were a couple rules that I did follow. And one of them was not giving someone their first drug. It was, I, I never wanted to do that. So it was two things. It was, it was one, desperation. That was number one. I think I think yeah. everyone has a moral compass. Everyone wants to talk about how strong their morals are, but I, I, I as well as I'm sure you know, those when those morals start to get tested under pressure, especially extreme pressure, a lot of people will fold in that scenario. Yeah. And so I think it's easy to look in on this conversation from the outside and say, I would never fucking do that. I would never do that. I would never do that. And I would never do that. Yeah. But those are the people who have never been put into a situation where they were clawing for life and that everything or everything was falling around them and they only, and they had no options. And that's why when I look at people who do anything for money, well, I've said this before, whether it's only fans, whether it's. I, I hate to say it, but fucking robbing the convenience store. I'm not saying those things are justified, but all I'm saying is it's really hard to look in from the outside and make judgment on people who are who are facing the evils that we don't understand. Growing up in a neighborhood and not having food to eat when you're six years old. You know what I'm saying? That's not me, but people do it every day. And they go and they rob the fucking store to get food because they're going to die or their family's going to fucking die if they don't do it. So I don't pass judgment on fucking anybody, bro. And I'm not saying it's okay, and I'm not saying there are other ways to do it, and I wish people would find those, but I also, I also, like I said, I don't judge people. And so when I was, when I was doing that shit, it was partially desperation, but then a weird way you, thing you also have to understand is when people were coming to me for drugs, they were coming to me, throwing up, shitting themselves, 
sweating all over the place and I got into the habit of making that stop. And so to me, I was a miracle worker. I wasn't a drug dealer. And it wasn't until I started to understand my ways when I got older that I understood the error and I understood how bad what I was doing was um, and, and started to feel the regret that I feel now about the things that I've done. But at the time, it was a mix of desperation, but also just know just this thought that like, yo, these people are gonna be aren't gonna be able to go to work. They're not gonna be able to continue feeding their own kids if they don't get high. You know what I'm saying? And so I always looked at it as a way of like making them feel better. But obviously, that was the you know it, was, it wasn't okay. You know, and I and I've come to terms with that now. Yeah, I mean, you were bullshitting yourself a little bit. Oh yeah, <laughs> like oh, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I'm sure like we all do. You've been in some wild situations. You know, I want you to tell people a little bit about like how dark things got at times because I think you know you're very good at recounting this and that and the you know the the epidemic and how bad it got, but I don't think people really fully get like how dark things get for people around you for you. Can you tell me some of the sort of times yeah. it, how bad it got? Yeah, I mean, listen, if you watch movies about stuff, you can get an idea, and I think everybody's mm. you know watched movies about about gang life about about cartels all of the drug world in this country is only a couple steps removed from the shit you see even the whitest white kids in fucking greenwich connecticut are only a couple steps removed from being in queens new york mm -hmm. with shipments of shit coming in it's all a very tight thing and so all of the evils that come along with it are gruesome they're gruesome, and and as I, you know, and as I, I as I stepped up that ladder towards New York City and towards those kind of people, I mean, I saw everything. I saw, you know, my I, I sat and watched my connect get you know pistol whipped in the fucking face over and over to a point that he almost died, and I had to, I had to go in and step in and plead with the guy that was doing it to please fucking stop, and he put the gun in my fucking face up to my teeth, and said, you know. I, I didn't. I stopped. I didn't say anything at that point. I stood there idly by and, and awaited my fate, and I didn't get killed, obviously. But I watched that happen. I've you know had I, I've had drug deals go wrong where I've gotten out and I was selling shit to this one kid, and he he I, I told him I wanted to see the money, and he wanted to see the drugs first so he could weigh it out, and he took the drugs, and I I just gave them to him to to you know look at. I never would do it, but I was just so impatient that day and he started to walk away with the drugs and he said, fucking do something about it. And I got out and I ran after him. And when I was going to throw a punch at him, my foot settled into a hole in the driveway and his boy came over and tackled me from the side while my foot was locked into this hole in the driveway. And my entire, I just heard and my entire fucking foot was just hanging off. The bones were sticking through the skin. And as I was laying on the ground with shock starting to set in, they were beating the fucking shit out of me, punching me in the face over and over and over again. And luckily my boys were there and they helped they they helped knock them out, got the drugs back. We left in the car. We were on the way to the hospital. I had to stash the drugs and all the and and we had full, you know, uh, we we're on we were almost on the we were almost at the hospital. We were getting onto the ramp on the highway, and I got surrounded by every narcotics agent detective everybody from from that department and i had to lay on the ground face down for two hours while i searched my car with my foot hanging off my fucking leg and so like your body's been unlucky bro horrible <laughs> bro I, I have so many i have so many scars on my body that are that are massive scars but um i want to go back to this the gun situation because uh I've been in situations where people have pulled weapons in fights and all sorts of things like that. And everyone sits there and goes, 
when you watch it and the movie you're like this is what I would do. Ah! I would, I would go, bah, 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 you know. And in reality, it's not like that. You, you do your fucking best, but then if, if there's a man pulling a gun right in your fucking mouth, like you got a lot to think about at that yeah. moment. Tell me what it was like for that moment for you. What went? Because you're a smart dude, and I bet you were processing shit at light speed. I was trying to listen. I call those people. Um, I call them uh, armchair generals. They know exactly what they would do. They're a general at war. If somebody yeah. pulls a gun on me, I'm gonna fucking pull my right hand. I'm gonna use. I'm gonna grip their their arm. <laughs> totally. I've heard that story so many fucking times from people yeah. who have never been in front of a gun before, bro. Exactly. Unless you are heavily, heavily tactically and operationally trained to react in situations where a gun is pulled on you, you are going to do, I promise you, the same thing that I did, which is assess the situation to figure out how much of a threat it really is and then react based on what you were built to react to do. And I will Bro, tell you just that- Just to be clear, just to be clear, the whole fucking world right now is staying indoors because a very small population of us has died. Right. right? They're all terrified. Oh, God. They, 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 you know, they're all terrified, let alone having a gun put in their fucking mouth. And that's what makes me laugh. Do you know what I mean? Like, everyone's hard until they're in that situation. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, like I said, I've talked to so many mm. people that have, have all these plans. But um, it, it, a lot. I also said, too, that it depends on the person a lot of times. Yeah. It depends cuz it cuz I wish that I could say it happened to me one time but I it's happened to me a lot of fucking times. <laughs> a lot of fucking times. And, I don't and, know why that's so funny. Right, it, it is it's no it's just insane, bro. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. I had so it, it, when it first started and I was dealing with only white kids in my neighborhood in my city, yeah. I would walk in and there was one time there I there was a couple different times. There's one time I walked into a basement and I opened the door and there was a kid with a double barrel shotgun pointed at me pointed right at me as soon as i walked in he knew i was coming to sell moxies i was still probably 22 years old at this point and then there was probably two or three more other situations like that in milford where mm. somebody showed me a strap it wasn't maybe this time it wasn't pointed at me but they showed it to me and said yo give me all your shit and tried to run me i told every one of those people fuck you pull the fucking trigger pussy because i knew who they were and i knew they wouldn't fucking do it even still that was scary as fuck even mm. still and it was because I was already an addict and I already didn't give a fuck. So for the normal person, they wouldn't do that. They would just comply. Mm -hmm. But the situations where it started to get real was when I was in Bridgeport or New Haven, which are the two inner cities that I'm, my town was sandwiched between in Connecticut. They're, they've both been top 10 most dangerous cities in the country at some point or another very 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 bad places i'm sure you understand these kind of neighborhoods and what they're like mm -hmm. when people in those places pulled guns on me it was a very different situation yeah. the one i the one i talked about in the book you know specifically was the guy that came into the basement we owed him money we owed his organization money he only had one job and that was to collect back debts that was his fucking job. He came a week earlier and he told us, yo, you owe us $10,000. We need that money next week or whatever the amount of money was, 12,000, who knows. We need that money next week. If you don't have it, and this was to my connect. I was watching this happen. I was sitting on a bed and he said, if you don't have the money next week, I'm going to come back and there's going to be a problem. And we knew what that meant. We, we picked up a bunch of shit. We tried to make it happen. We couldn't get the fucking money. He came back literally seven days fucking later 
with the same fucking outfit, the same black hoodie, the same hat, the same gloves, same pants, had his fucking hand in his hoodie pocket the whole time, never took his hand out of his hoodie pocket. We, we see him get out of the car, he runs, he runs down the alleyway, because we had cameras. My Connect had cameras on the outside of his house. We saw him run down the alley, I go, this ain't good. Walks in, immediately goes, yo, do you have the fucking money? My Connect, this dude, I don't even want to say his name, said no. Pistol whipped to the fucking face and just started pummeling, pummel, 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 dude, with the 9mm. He's on the ground bleeding, and I and I, I stood up. There was like three other people. There's two girl, two girls. I stood up and I go, yo, please, you have to fucking stop doing this, bro. You're gonna kill him. And he put the gun in my fucking face, black nine, right in my fucking face. And I go, I, I said nothing. I said nothing. I just stood there like this. At this point, I was probably 24 years old, and I just stood there and I was like, all those calculations, bro. All oh, yeah. those calculations about what your right hand's gonna do and your left hand's gonna do and what you're gonna say gone and you're just at the you're just at the mercy of somebody with a gun you're at the mercy of a madman with a gun you know what i'm saying and, and it happened a couple times after that in other cities and every time you know especially the 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 other time i wrote about in the book where it was this where it was this uh drug addict running out of the house this was in new haven at the time and it was this this fucked up black street dude runs out of the house old ass fucking revolver with tape on the grip i'll always remember the fucking gun this time and I had my my connects with me in the back seat again this time, and he ran up, gun out. The soon he walked out, the, as soon as he walked out the door, and we had some girl driving us who didn't know not to pull too close to the car in front of her, so she pulled in right in front of right up to the back of the car in front of her where we parked, and so we couldn't get out, we couldn't speed off. She would have had to reverse first, and so he walked out with the revolver and put it straight into the fucking window, of course, to me first, and said, "Yo, run." run everything and my connects in the back seat i was like oh they're gonna either pull a strap and shoot or they're gonna do something to make this guy stop and they go yo give up everything give him fucking everything you got so he handed over all the drugs all the money everything he had i always remember that dude he had a fucking revolver you could see the fucking bullets in the in the chamber tape on the tape on the on the uh on the grip and he had snot running down his nose and he was fucking shaking and i said yo this dude like my brain said, this dude is the dude that pulls the trigger. This oh, really? dude will shoot all fucking four of us right fucking now, bro. You know what I'm saying? Fuck and so it's Mason. it's crazy, bro. It comes that it comes a lot. It comes down a lot to who is the person. But I mean, I would I would unless you're trained military trained because obviously now we've we've started to do a lot of military training and I still am a rookie at it. But we've trained with you know with Logan with the Navy SEALs um, a little bit in Virginia. And they've taught us a ton about reaction. So somebody, reaction, uh, uh, action is always faster than reaction. And so when someone pulls a gun, if you act, their ability to shoot you needs to be so fast and it won't be. So, so if you are trained to act in that situation and you know exactly what your plan is and you're willing to commit to that plan, then you have a chance to fight back when somebody pulls a gun on you but for the average joe dude it's 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 a crapshoot i mean the only thing you could really do at that point is comply you've had a lot of fucking near-death experiences bro i mean not not even not even just the the drug life but like uh you know general stuff like uh your skiing accident and other things can can you give me a little rundown of some of these other near-death experiences because i'm fascinated by this so now 16 years old i was playing basketball I was with my friends. This was before any of us started using drugs at all. And um, 
we were at my friend's house, and I was I I, I loved basketball. That was my thing. I was a tall guy, played center, but I, I would play forward sometimes too. I just loved basketball. And I was driving to the hole to, to just to lay the ball in, but I was driving really hard. And one of my friends at the time stuck his foot out a little bit too far to defend me. And I tripped really hard over his fucking foot as I was jumping up to, to, to do a layup. And when I fell, I fell so hard on the ground, I, I got winded. You know that feeling of getting winded where you can't breathe? <gasps> and you're trying to breathe? That happened to me. And so I go inside and I, I lay, I, I tell him, I'm like, boys, boys, I gotta go inside. I gotta go lay inside for a little bit. And I went inside and I was laying on the bed and it was a really nice like spring day. And I remember like the, the wind, the breeze was blowing nice and it was just this really calm day. And I was laying on the bed and I kept feeling myself come in and out of consciousness. Like, like I was like I was losing life, like I was losing my consciousness. And when my friends came in, they they afterwards, like an hour or two later, they saw me and my I was blue. I was completely blue. My my whole face, everything was was blue. And uh, they were like, "Yo, you have to go to the fucking hospital. Something's wrong with you." So my dad picked me up. We went to the hospital. We walk in, and um, they didn't know what was going on. And I was I I I, I was fading in and out of consciousness. Like it's it, there's a there's a really weird feeling when the life is draining out of you it's re it's a really strange feeling of just of just like um it's almost it, it's this it's this peace dude it's this peace and it's like this really quiet feeling of going under you know what i'm saying and it's this and it's obviously the scariest fucking thing in the entire world but if you when you start to feel it it's it's almost like this inner peace is like grabbing at you right and when i got to the hospital i was still going in and out of consciousness and so they started making me they started making me drink gallons of dye, this this dye stuff, and I kept drinking and drinking. And I have, I kept, they kept bringing me in for X-rays, MRIs, CAT scans, and eventually they found out that when I had done that layup and fell, I had obliterated my spleen completely. I'd ruptured it, massive, massive internal bleeding in my stomach. I was, I was bleeding out literally. I lost about forty percent of my blood into my fucking stomach, and so. Now, by that point, my, my whole family's there and I find out that we've got this massive issue and I'm, I'm, I'm just like out, you know, I'm laying on the bed, I'm in ICU, I'm going under and I remember the doctors come in and they go, uh, one of the nurses goes, honey, you're not going to like what we have to do right now. It's, it's not going to be fun for you, but we're going to do it to save your life. You ha we have to do it. And um, they walked over and I saw him with this long tube and they walked over and they, they were like, we have to put this tube into your nose and it's gonna go in your nose, around your membrane, down your throat, into your stomach. And I said, I said, I can't do this. You have to put me out. You have to put me under. You can't do this. They're like, well, we can't put you under. You're you're at risk. You can't. We can't do it. And so they started feeding this tube in my nose, down my throat, into my stomach. And they turned a machine on, and it pumped pint after pint of blood and and vial out of my fucking stomach into a holding tank. And they just kept doing that over and over and just suck. And so at the same time, they're running someone else's blood into my body because I'm bleeding out, literally. Like, I'm just bleeding internally horribly. And um, so when they finally got most of it sucked out of my stomach, they brought me into the emergency room. They cut a massive cut down my entire abdomen. They removed my spleen. And then they sewed me back up. And so for the next for the next two weeks after that, I was on intravenous morphine and and, you know, um, all kinds of myriad of painkillers and then I finally went home and two weeks after that I had what's called a, 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 a it's a, called a medical relapse 
And so what happened was my intestines, as they were settling into their new home without a spleen blocking them, tangled tangled upon themselves into a knot. And so I was unable to pass food that I was eating through to my bowels. And so everything I was eating was just collecting in my, in my intestine. And so I had to go back. And the doctors told me that when I went back that second time, the scar was so fresh still that they were able to just open it, my stomach back up with it. Just, they cut it right back down, opened me back up, went back in, unraveled my intestines and then sewed me back up again. So that was all when I was 16. By the time I was 17, I broke my femur skiing, sh- broke it in half, fractured my, the back of my skull, completely fractured it, was covered in fucking blood and, and absolutely terrible. Was on painkillers again for that. Um, and then, I, and then after that, yeah, it just kept going. I mean, I, I, I've totaled cars at 100 miles an hour. I've, I've driven cars off cliffs into into ravines and and woken up in, in in puddles, you know, drenched in blood. And obviously, there's pictures of that on the internet. That's in the book of me just covered in blood. Have had that happen. I've, I, you know, I, I, um, oh, and then obviously when they when the kids when I when I broke my ankle and my ankle broke, it completely shattered. And so I have two screw. Uh, I have two plates, 25 screws in my right ankle, um, and that's m- probably my worst injury because I have severe arthritis in that ankle now because of all the hardware. Mm. And when I and when I got clean, I gained about, or as I was getting clean at the end of my addiction, I gained about 100 pounds. And so at one point, I was actually 300 pounds. I, I want to just go back a little <laughs> bit, right? Yeah. Because uh, that's a hell of a fucking list, bro. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of the main talking points in America right now is the police. Now, you were clearly, you, or you should have been on their fucking radar at some point. And I wanted to know if you had any issues, how, how that was. I was 100% on the radar, it, it, both in my town as well as in the federal spotlight once things mm. got to, to, its, to its worst point. But, um, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm still a felon right now. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a felon, a narcotics, you know, felon. I've got, I, I, I had some of the most insane um, indictments that were, that uh, honestly, that I could ever even imagine, that a lot of people could ever imagine. I, I had a, a couple a couple narcotics felonies, and um, I, I was able to, because of selling, I was able to afford really good lawyers, luckily, and, and that was what kept me out of jail. But um, one of my charges was one of the times I got arrested was these girls, it was New Year's Eve in 2008. It was New Year's Eve. And I, I had this hotel room with these two girls and my, uh, the rest of my boys. And we were all getting completely fucked up. We were doing ecstasy. You know, they were shooting heroin. It was just this, you know, crazy drug party, obviously. And I had a bunch of cash on me. I probably had about like, I probably had like five, six grand on me. And when I woke up, the next, uh, and I, so I went to sleep. Everybody else was still partying. It was it was like five in the morning at this point, and you know they're all doing drugs. And I go into the bedroom and I, I go to sleep. I'm like, yo, don't fuck the room up. I'm going to bed. About an hour later, my buddy comes in. And he wakes me up and he goes, yo yo yo, wake wake up, wake up. Where's your wallet? And I'm like, it's right here next to me on the nightstand. And I reach over to grab it and it's not there. And my, the money was in a huge wad folded inside the wallet, like closed. You could see the money if you walked into the room. Mm-hmm. And I go, where the fuck are they? And he goes, they're gone. Because I knew it was those fucking girls, dude. Because the rest was just my homies, like my best friends. 
And I go, how long ago did they leave? And he goes, like, literally, like, five minutes. I go, go the fuck down there and fucking find them. And so he runs down the stairs, and I I run down about 30 seconds after him. This, this was my boy. He was, like, my enforcer. He would, like, handle all this kind of shit that when it would happen. And... He go, when I get downstairs, I'm in a robe. It's fucking New Year's Day. It's like six in the morning. The sun's just coming up. People are starting to go about, you know, whatever day there is. It's a light traffic day, obviously, because it's New Year's Day. And I come down and he's already gotten in the backseat of their car. So he's arguing with them and they're telling him to calm down, but they didn't even see me coming out yet. And at this time, I was a fucking psychopath, dude. So I walked down and as soon as I saw her car, I started punching the fucking window with my bare hand trying to smash the fucking window. Punching, punches, screaming. You fucking bitch, you crazy, right? She goes, she gets scared, puts the car in reverse and drives away and speeds away. So I get in my Jeep that I had at the time and start chasing after him. We're doing 70 miles an hour in a 35, flying up and down the street, up the street. She, every time we would get to a, a stoplight, she would put the car you know, she or she would do a U-turn and go the other way. And I would turn around and start chasing her the other way. And eventually I got tired of the cat and mouse game. And when, when we got to a stoplight, the next time I got in front of her before we got to the light and I slammed on my brakes really hard and she crashed into the back of my car. And my Jeep was up on the hood of her car. Fuck. And my boy, and, and so I get out of the car and, and like, just try to imagine this scene. Like, try to imagine, like, what's happening. You know what I'm saying? Like, these girls are screaming now. Screaming at the top of their fucking lungs. My boy is talking, like, yelling at him. Give us the fucking money. We're in the middle of a main intersection in a fucking city, right? And I walk up and I start smashing on the window, smashing on the window. And she rolls down the window. And my boy has this, like, look of terror in his eyes. And he goes, yo, sh she called the cops. She called 911. And I, and I look at her phone and 911's, she's on the phone with 911. So I take her phone and I smashed it on the fucking ground. But they, I already heard the sirens. They were already coming. She must have called while we were still driving. So my boy's like, get out of here, get out of here, I'll handle it. So I go back to the hotel. And all, all this is in the story, in, in the book, and there's more about it in the book. But I go back to the hotel and what happens is we get away. The cops don't find the hotel room. He gets some of the money back. He got like 600 bucks from him. They kept the rest they, and they, they drove away. Now, the cops didn't, no one heard from these girls for three days after it happened. And so the last thing the cops had was a 911 call from these girls that someone was trying to kill them. And the last number that they dialed on their cell phone before 911, which was my number. The cops brought me in. They questioned me, they read me my Miranda rights, which in the United States is you have the right to remain silent, all that fun stuff. And they told me we're probably going to arrest you down the line. I said to the cops, if you do that, the only thing I ask you, and I'm, I'm asking you, you know, man to man, please don't come to my mother's house. Just call me, I'll show up at the police station, you can cuff me, you can take me in, it's, it'll be so easy. And they were like, yeah, I'm like, sure. This was after a ton of arrests that I had already racked up. They hated me and they were never able to put me in jail. They fucking hated me, bro. Four months later, they showed up at my mom's house at one in the morning. The entire fucking, the, 10 cruisers, bro. And ironically, I was bagging up when they rolled up. I was in my room bagging up and I luckily was able to put all that shit into my drawer, cash, everything put away. And so at one in the morning, they rang the doorbell to my mom's house full force and my mom watched me get handcuffed and taken out of her house on a 19 felony charge indictment.
two counts of uh, kidnapping or, or unlawful restraint, which is kidnapping in the United States, uh, one count of strangulation, felony strangulation, two counts of, of, of assault, um, vehicular, you know, every, every charge you could ever fucking imagine. And I was already on a suspended sentence at the time. And so the, the likelihood that I was going to do a, a lot of fucking time was really high for that one. And luckily, uh, about two weeks before it went to trial, because I was going to try to take it to trial. I don't know why, because the plea, the plea on it was horrible. I was definitely going to do time. Two weeks before we took it to trial, those girls got arrested stealing credit cards in like five different cities. And so their entire case about how they didn't steal it, how it, I made this whole thing up, because I didn't do any, I didn't do any of the shit they said. It was all, it was all fake. It was all lies. Mm -hmm. But their whole thing fell apart, and I ended up pleading out to like one count of third degree assault or something like that. And so that was probably like the worst, the worst um, run in with the cops that ever happened. But there was, I mean, it was always happening. And 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 yo, yeah. like to to your question. I never had to deal with any of the shit that that people of color or or you know of lower socioeconomic um, luxuries had to deal with. My first arrest for somebody else in a worse place probably would have put me in jail for years. Yeah. So you you think that you got you got favorable treatment because of your skin color then? Skin color, but also, and I I don't know I. I I do believe that, but I also believe that I was... I have always been a very good talker. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, talk too, I talk too much, and I talk, but I talk well. And so yeah. that's been a gift I've had since the day I was, I was able to speak. And so when it came time to me to for me to talk to prosecutors or talk to a judge, when I walked in and the charges were felony this, felony that, by the time I had a conversation with them, I was just a lost boy, you know, who... Yeah. who went the wrong way but was doing everything in his power to make it right you know and, and this was going to be the time that i got better i know you've you've had people talk to you about making your life into a movie and we say this in all hollywood movies when there's a motivational story when someone hits rock bottom there's a thing there's a turning point what was that moment for you there there's this is a two two-part answer so the the time period right before i got clean was so bad that I knew 100% that I was weeks away from death. I knew it, I knew it without a shadow of a doubt because I'd, yeah. I'd started smoking crack because somebody offered it to me and, and, I, and I, I just honestly, I didn't care anymore. I wasn't sleeping for weeks, Jordy. I wasn't sleeping for weeks. I, like two weeks would go by, I wouldn't sleep. My blood was boiling, bro. I was, I was, I was dying, dude. I fucking knew it. And so a part of it was desperation and, and not wanting to die and not wanting my mom to bury her son at fucking 25. Like, Part of it was that, but luckily there was one more important factor because I could have kept going. I probably could have just died, but luckily I had gotten in enough trouble with the law that I had a probation officer who finally pulled my fucking card, bro. And I, I got, I had gotten reassigned to her about two weeks earlier. And right when I got reassigned to her, she gave me a urine test and it came back for Benz, for benzodiazepines, uh, uh, heroin or opiates and cocaine. The first, the first test she gave me, I had popped so many dirty urines at my at the clinic I was at and at probation. They didn't care. They were like, try harder, try harder, do better, do better, because they can't. 
drug addiction is a weird thing. They can't just throw the fucking book at you. You know what I'm saying? It's a medical condition, right? I gave her one dirty urine and she said, Mike, I just met you. I don't know you. I'm going to give you one more chance. I'll see you in two weeks. And I said, yeah, 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 sure thing. Two weeks later, I come in, I peed in a cup for her. She called me back the next day and she goes, hey Mike, just wanna let you know, your um, results came back for your test yesterday, positive for cocaine, for opiates, and for, for Xanax. Um, tomorrow, you're going to um, go to detox and rehab, or you're gonna come here and you're gonna surrender to uh, the uh, penal system and you're gonna do your five years. Tomorrow, tomorrow. She called you out on your shit, bro. Recently. And I stood there and I looked at the phone and I go, "What the fuck just happened, bro?" I go, I, "Well, at first I said to her, I was like, I was like, I, I, I went into defense mode. The test is wrong. No, that's bullshit. <laughs> I, I didn't fucking do drugs. I did, I didn't do anything." And then I went into sorrow mode and I was like, "Listen, Ellen, Ellen, slow down, please. I, I'll do better." And she said, "See you tomorrow, Mike." And hung up the fucking phone. <laughs> She's like, I do this shit all day. I gotta go. I gotta go all see. Day. I gotta go see her, bro. Because honestly, she, yeah. she her her name's Ellen, dude. And she needs to know though that she's making a difference because for these people, they're shoveling shit. They're not getting credit. They're fighting with people. They they're arguing with people like you on the phone, and they they are making a difference. Like. A, ma a massive difference, bro. And so yeah. I, I, I will, I will, I will find her. I need to go back and talk to a lot of people, and I will do that. But so she said that, and I was like, "Fuck, dude, I don't want to go to jail." Like I'd spent like you know nights and a couple nights in cells here and there, but I was pretty lucky that I was able to escape without doing real time. And so she was like, "You're gonna go." So so the next day I talked to her. I was like, "I'm going to detox," and I went to a detox, and they said, "Yo, we." might not be able to take you because you're literally addicted to every drug under the sun. You would need 24 hour surveillance monitoring just to come to this fucking detox. And so they eventually took me and I spent, you know, the next week throwing up all over myself, shitting all over the place, shaking, crying, sweating, having every nightmare under the sun about, about dying and about pe killing people and people killing me. And I suffered through a week of the worst fucking anguish ever. And I walked out of that detox on the other side and, and then followed it up with a, with a 30 day re rehab. And that was the end of that story. One fucking time, dude. And, and, um, you know, I tried to get clean before that a bunch of times, obviously, but that was the one time that I went to detox and the one time I went to rehab and that was, and that was it. A lot of people say addiction is a disease. And I know you've said this before and, and, and part of getting over those bad addictions is sort of replacing them with some healthy ones. Is that part of what happened with you? I know you had weight gain. Did you replace it with food or how did you do that? Yeah. But yeah, that's basically it. I mean, it's, it's just a, when you're an addict, which I am through and through, hundred percent, it's just it's always just a, a it's always just replacing one thing with another. You're always gonna have yeah. an addiction, and yeah, yeah I gained a hundred pounds, and Fuck. by the time I got out of rehab, I was you know three hundred pounds. I was so fat, and I'll send pictures to you so you have them. <laughs> Cheers, mate. We're not gonna put them in the video. I just want to keep that the laugh. Out of you know. <laughs> Good. But I, but I fucking, dude, I, I, I was a mess. And at some point when I got out, I, I, I got this desire to just be better. Like, I don't know where it came from, but I wanted, I, I, I started trying things that I saw healthy people doing. Cause this is my favorite part of the story. All the other shit is, is, is the fun stuff for the movie, the fun stuff to listen to, the shit people want to hear on a podcast, whether or not they have addiction or, or mental health. They just like listening to crazy stories.
my favorite part of the story is talking about how I got out because that's the shit I want other people to hear. And one of the aspects of getting out was I started to try healthy things that I saw other healthy people doing. I was like, y'all just try it out. This motherfucker's got the hottest girlfriend and I, I, I'm, maybe I saw him on Facebook or something. I'm like, what does he eat? What? He said all he eats is chicken and rice. I eat Wendy's for breakfast, Dunkin' Donuts for, you know, a snack, McDonald's for lunch every day, Dutch's for dinner. All I ate was fast food. Four times a day, Jordy. Four times a fucking day. How Talk long did it take, though, between the rehab and, like, blowing up in weight? Like, for you to have that thought that is, maybe I should just try different. Well, I, listen, at first, dude, it's all about staying clean. I mean, at first, yeah. the, for the first, like, you know, four or five months after you get out of rehab or after you stop doing drugs, you're the only thing you do all day is try to stay clean. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and and that's the tough and that's the tough thing. So I'm not worried about that kind of shit at first. Like Logan always says, the most powerful force or one of the most powerful forces in the world is momentum. And as you start to get this clear mind and as you start to get some clarity back and you start to be able to process shit again and become a human again you start to have desires for the other things humans have. You know what I'm saying? And, and oh, man. When, I, when, I, when I got clean and I had five months clean, I looked around me, I had nothing, bro. I was, I, I, I was, 20, I was 26 years old. I had no credit. I had no car. I had no education. I had no friends because all my friends were using drugs and I couldn't talk to them. I had nothing, dude. I had nothing at all. And I was so confused and so like, yo, what the fuck am I gonna do? Now, what you were saying there really resonates with me because I feel like a lot of us fail in life because we're trying to kill too many birds with one stone. And, uh, you know, even two birds, one stone seen as a success. So for me personally, in my, in my life, for the last year, it's been like managing my finances, doing better business and, and being a better businessman like that's been as well as you know handling some mental bullshit that happened like about a year ago as yep. i told you yeah and and lately my brain's been going oh well you can do this as well and you can do that as well and i'm like shit like yeah i can but a year ago that would have felt impossible yeah yeah but like what you were saying at some point your brain goes no now you've got this you can take on a little more but but you, you, the kind of you just have to let that happen and sometimes i think people fail whether it be trying to save money being on a diet trying to get off drugs whatever it is by having too many things to worry about at one time and we fuck ourselves before we even get started that's so uh, that's so true i mean it's 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 a hundred percent accurate i think if you look at people at the top of the success ladder and at the top of the world mm. and you look at them as as like uh examples of what you could do if you're going to succeed you're looking in the wrong place yeah i when i first got clean when i first got out of rehab and and you can use that example for people who just got clean or people who just got over a breakup whatever it is like these, these these examples all work together all i had to think about at first was getting clean that was it if i tried to tackle getting clean getting my getting my weight down finding a job building credit finding a house finding a lover that whole the whole house would have fallen down again i would have been back mm -hmm. doing heroin again Mm -hmm. And it's so important that people find a way to prioritize the most important thing yeah. 
work on that and then layer in the next thing after one one thing at a time sort of thing because like when you look at a fucking uh you know the rock and we compare ourselves to like these megastars it's like bro they've got 50 fucking people working for them on their life making it as simple and as easy as fucking possible like don't compare yourself to these guys you have to you have to approach everything slowly and in layers i mean i, I at first it was just getting clean and then i started and then i saw people were eating right and so i started to eat a little bit better and then when i started to eat a little bit better i started to lose a little bit of weight and then when i started to lose a little bit of weight i was like yo i should try like exercising again since it's been 10 years since i've done any fucking kind of exercise <laughs> and i found this old bike in the garage this old schwinn bike and on days my mom couldn't bring me to na meetings I would ride the bike to NA meetings. And I started to get into this habit of riding this bike and I really liked the way that it felt. It felt like I was, I, I, I would, I don't, I don't recommend this because it's not super safe, but I would listen to music while I rode my bike. And I would listen to Mac Miller and all these different artists and like, I felt free when I was out on the bike and I started to really love it. And so when I first started, I was riding two, three miles a day, but by the end of it, I started riding hundred mile fucking rides, dude. And all of it just started slowly and then, and then grew. You know what I'm saying? And so I, mm -hmm. I think your point about tackling the biggest issue first and then slowly yeah. layering in everything and just getting a little bit better at a time yeah. is probably one of the most important things you could tell anybody in the fucking world dude because do what you can handle that's yeah. it that's it dude yeah. at first you're gonna you're gonna have to crawl before you walk you know what i'm saying yeah. and i went through all of that like it's not perfect at first it's 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 like learning how to do everything over again you mm -hmm. know i, I want to jump a little bit to a happier time for you now because um <laughs> we we've all met you as one of the hosts of Impulsive, you know, a, a fucking good podcast. You know, it's done really well in America. It's like, I, I feel like we're your brother podcast from over here, you know. I, I, love, like I love that, Jordan. Yeah. I, I, I love that. <clears throat> but um, a lot of people, if they don't know, um, you guys met through work. You got, you were working at this fucking big beanbag uh, store. Yeah. Logan calls up. He's wanting a fucking beanbag. You're like, yeah, sure, no problem. Logan's like, can you fuck on them? <laughs> like, and all of us, and this friendship comes out of nowhere. And, um, and I'm not saying you would never have, have, have found your way onto YouTube at some point, because I think some people are just destined to create content or creative people, and you're one of those people. But you met him at a really interesting time, and you met him around the time of the Tokyo, uh, you know, the suicide forest, all of that stuff, where he was probably rock bottom himself. Yeah. So you come in with experience of being at rock bottom. Yeah. And you get this kid who isn't at the same rock bottom by any means, but... You know, I think there's few people. I think in terms of YouTube, we, that might be the most hated YouTube has ever got ever. Oh yeah. yeah. So so it's not the same as being a, a drug addict who's almost dying, but it's fucking hard regardless. Yeah. And uh, and I was one of the people who who was saying some shit about him at the time. So so what about that? What was that like being around him at that moment? Tell us from behind the scenes how he was handling because he gives a very, you know, we all tell our story in a certain way and we get used to saying it over and over again. But you were there for that real shit. I want to know about that. There's a little bit of, about it in the book, but listen, like, for people who don't know, Logan Paul and Maverick are, are this is an organization. This isn't like like this isn't like a um, 
Like even like Dobrik and some of these other massive, massive creators, like this kid, this kid is surrounded by some of the brightest business minds and some of the most eager and 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 um, influential people in the business world, in the content world, like this was the, the, the fucking breadwinner. So many people had put their bets in on this fucking kid, dude. Mm -hmm. Year one, Maverick Clothing, $35 million in fucking sales. Mm -hmm. No signs of slowing down. Like this was, the, the, the VCs were lining up. Like people were ready to put money and people were, hedge, were making those bets. And so I think a lot of people see this, you know, chachi kid with a camera, but I mean, this kid was at the top of the fucking world. Like he, he had The Rock, he had fucking Kevin Hart, everybody was friends with him, like he was crushing it, dude. Mm -hmm. And he was doing it on the business side as well because no one had done clothing yet. People had tried it, but no one had done clothing yet. He was the first one to make a fucking clothing brand and, and sell millions and millions and millions of dollars worth. When Tokyo happened, a hundred people watched everything fucking burn bro from his parents to the investors to all his management to all the people that were watching to himself to his friends and what what happened after tokyo and for about six months to a year after that was one of the most aggressive vicious manipulative backstabbing infighting periods of an organization that I've ever seen in my life and I've been through some drug organizations and some really really top level corp corporate environments yeah. people don't realize what YouTube's like behind the scenes Bro, it's 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 not what you see on the camera it's as not you say. it's not ex except for I hope with people like us where I give you exactly. everything and then you you know what I'm saying so it is exactly. kind of, but it was nasty bro and you know you had you had you know, old, you know, CEO versus dad versus mom versus me versus Logan. And, and this person's in low and there was girlfriends involved. It was a fucking mess. And you had this person telling Logan one thing and then coming and telling me something else. And every, there was so much infighting as you watched this $50 million machine that was supposed to put kids through college and buy everybody AMG Mercedes and houses in the hills fucking collapse around everyone and um i had already become pretty good friends with logan we we were we were we were pretty pretty tight and he had already looked at me as an advisor and as a as a confidant and as a friend but that was the time that that set our relationship in concrete and rock bro because when everything else fell and every single person or all the people that are no longer with us and, 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 and you know, a lot, we've done a lot of restructuring, obviously, but when everyone that he needed in his life at the time was making grabs for power and for money and for chess moves to put other people down, I was sitting there saying, I want nothing. I want nothing. I don't want shit. I don't want, I don't want a fucking tag on Instagram. I don't, there was one day where after Tokyo happened, I flipped out and I said, yo, this team, this business needs a review process. I know $1 million annual businesses that have every single piece of fucking content they make reviewed by a five person team. If you had done the right fucking thing, Tokyo never would have happened. That shit would have been reviewed by the lawyers or the legal team or the review team, the PR team and killed immediately. But because you let the power rest in the hands of a 22 year old, 23 year old, 
Now we got a fucking problem. Put a review team in place. One month or whatever it was after that, I was sitting on the tarmac. I'm about to leave JFK to come back here. And I got a, I look on fucking Google and the kid tased a fucking rat. And he's got no money. And now he's demonetized. Uh, he's got yeah. no fucking brand deals. He's got I, no... I, I got a question about Logan, though. Do you think that there was a little bit of him that thought, ah, there's going to be some backlash. There's going to be some people who love me. And I'll take, take it both for what it is. Or, or do you think he was clueless about what was coming? No, no, no. This was, this was Logan. Right. He didn't give a fuck. He didn't care. He was, he was pissed off that he got the backlash on, on video one. And now he was going to say, fuck you, I'm going to do whatever I fucking want, dude. He still, he still hadn't learned. It wasn't until he took the step away after the rat and got humbled big time. Hey, man, if you keep this up, all this shit goes away. All this shit goes away. All of it. The cars, the money, the fame, all of it. As much as you want to believe that you're running the show... You report to someone else. No matter how oh. big we get, me, you, Logan, anybody, Susan Wajowski is our fucking boss, bro. Whatever her fucking last name is. Susan at YouTube, <laughs> that's our boss. Yeah. And so he he needed, he was the invincible 23-year-old that wanted to say fuck you. And it wasn't until after that happened and until he spent the next year away and learning to box obviously and 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 spending hours and hours and hours with people who wanted to make him a better person and looking within himself to see what he was doing wrong that he became the logan paul that you know today which is a which is the fucking man bro i've got a couple of more questions on logan i don't want to go on and on and on about him because this is about you but a lot of people love to get your perspective on logan because you get a different side of him than everyone else and i heard you mention something in a recent podcast about how early on Logan's someone in Logan's family wasn't that keen on you and I genuinely don't know who the fuck this was and Logan was ready to defend you to a point where he was ready to throw down now I, I think we can all guess who it probably could have been <laughs> but but I want to know about this because this is fascinating shit the fact that he was willing to defend you like that is is powerful there's this infamous night we don't really talk about it a lot but we mention it on the podcast all the time there's this infamous night this was right in the middle of the Tokyo fighting. It was right in the middle of all of that infighting about who was gonna be the next this, who was gonna be the next that. And at one point, Logan had even asked me, yo, do you, wanna, do you want to be the CEO and the leader of this organization? You have background, you have corporate experience. I trust you, I know you'll do the right thing for me. Do you wanna lead this ship? And I said to him, I don't believe that I have the experience and the wherewithal and the knowledge to be that person. Like, that would have made me a shit ton of fuck. I would have made a lot of fucking money. A lot of money. Off both of those fights, I would have took a percent. Like, I said, that's, that's not me. Unfortunately, as bad as I wish it could be. There was massive infighting and, 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 and manipulation around who was going to be the, leader, the new leader of the camp and who was going to do this and who was going to do that. And it led to this sit-down in the garage of his house where there was about 15 people. And it turned into this... It turned into this this witch hunt that was factless and baseless and made attacks on my character that Logan knew were not true and that Evan knew were not true because I so, so what led to this the fact that he was willing to give you that job people were starting to sense that Logan and I were getting very close 
Mm. In both the business, the friendship, the, the, the advice department, everywhere. Why is that a problem, though? If you are someone on the team or that's around the team that stands to benefit off of yeah. leading Logan in a direction that he shouldn't be going, when the mm -hmm. guy comes in that tells Logan not to go in that direction, he's a fucking threat, yeah. a massive threat. And so there were a couple people who had started to create a massive problem at the top of the organization that then trickled down and led to this one fateful meeting where it got hotter than I could ever tell you. And and there was a lot of people and it turned into this massive accusation, manipulation fest. What was the worst thing anyone said about you? Tell, give me an example. Yeah. That How that bad? I'm that I'm a that I'm a drug addict, that I'm a risk to the camp, that I'm a criminal that um was this all one person or was this multiple people it, it was there was a, a couple people and, and 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 you know most most of them are no longer a, a part of the organization there's a couple that are gone maybe those people didn't know me yet because there because there were people also that were a part of that meeting who weren't exactly coming to my defense that know me now and I'm very good friends with mm -hmm. and so the the lesson that came out of that night was don't pass a very important judgment on someone until you get the chance to know them. I think that is such a overlooked statement in the influencer world and in this industry that we live in where people watch us talk and they watch us on videos for two minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, depending on the length of our vlogs or podcasts. And they make these judgments about who we are as people or about our lives. And yeah. so you saw that happen in a microcosm during this meeting and it led to this really, really dramatic moment where I was face to face with someone um, that was about to turn into a fight and Logan jumped in and, and basically said, you know, you're not going to do this to my fucking friend. Was that Jake Paul? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask these questions, mate. You know what it's like. I mean, listen, I try to stay out of, the, out of drama, bro. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, listen, like me and, me and Jake have had a really, you know, storied uh, <laughs> relationship. It's been it's been really tricky. Is that because he's his brother and they got, obviously they love each other, but then you're coming along and you naturally click with Logan. Is there any of that which is a little bit like, he's my brother, not yours, or is it just competitive, I don't know, any other bullshit? Jake is still growing and maturing I think we can see that on his Instagram. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, he's still figuring it out. Also, as a person, Jake is much more likely to conflict than Logan is. Uh, right. he's, 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 he's abrasive. As a result of that, of his build, of the way, he, that, the way that he is, this fiery, always-on fighting kind of person, he's going to have those clashes with a lot of people, not just me, and he has. We've seen it in the past, whether it be, you know, Rice Gum, whether it be Banks, whether it be Logan, whoever, we've seen those clashes happen. But I think you're spot on when, when you say, you know, is there this fear of somebody else coming into the family? Like, listen, like, I'm, Lo Lo I'm Logan's brother, dude. Like, mm -hmm. I'm Logan's fucking brother, dude, literally. Like, his mom is like another mom to me. Like, we're best fucking friends. Um, and so I, I can't, you know, I can't speak for him. I can't, I can't speak for Jake and explain why me and him have had, you know, the troubles that we've had in the past. The, 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 the thing that has upset me about it 
I have constantly tried to, even though I've sometimes had little beefs where I've said shit on shows or whatever in content, behind the scenes, I've always tried to go out of my way to help him. Constantly, constantly, yo, what advice do you need? Like, what's going on in your relationship? Do you want to talk to my girlfriend? Do you want to, like, what do you, what can we do to help you get to where, I've had hour, two, three hour conversations with him. Where's your, where's, where's your head out with him now? Because obviously this was a while ago and, and the kid is growing. What do you think about him now? I have endless patience for people, dude. I, I, I said, you know, in an interview last week that there's only so many chances that, like, you give people before you just get tired of pulling that fucking knife out of your back. You know what I'm saying? Or, or, your, or your front, whatever. Um, but in all honesty, dude, like, I'll always, I'll always be there for that kid. I, 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 see, I see more of, I see way, way more of myself in Jake than I do in Logan. Mm -hmm. way more of myself bro he's 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 a fucking you know it, as far as his mentality he's a fiery kid who who unfortunately a lot of times doesn't look at the big picture and i was the same way i was the same way and um i don't know what it is i don't i don't know what it is and why you know me and him haven't you know been able to get to a point where we're consistently on good terms um but but it will happen it will happen I, I, I truly do love the kid. I truly do care about him a lot. You know, it's who, who knows what the reasoning is. And, and honestly, like, this is the most I've talked about it and probably the most I want to really talk about it. But um, fair, I, fair. I think, I think you know, give it give it time. And, and we're good right now. Like, if I see him, mm -hmm. we dap each other up. I'm a, he's the co-host of a show that <laughs> is on MTV. Like, we're good. It's just a matter of just, you know, creating a... a, a I, need to, I think I need to do a better job of understanding what the fuck is going on you know what i'm saying because like i don't have any feelings towards him i have no negative feelings towards him um there's just always been a little bit of like uneasiness on his part and i think maybe it does come down to the fact that yo like you're not <laughs> you're not my brother's brother so why are you how, why, how how and why have you turned into that you know what i'm saying I'm, i must fucking love talking to you because it's like after 11 here and uh where i'm going strong listen to me jordy i'm doing this for you that's it all my other interviews have been 15 minutes, and when they ask me about fucking, uh, when they ask me about Jake Paul, I say I love Jake Paul. Next question. But um, enough about men. Okay, go ahead. It's Here time. We go. It's time to talk about the women. <laughs> All right. So, um, I'm a I'm an avid watcher of porn, just as yourself, mate. And uh, I'm not even going to get this. Isn't about Lana. You've been fucking multiple porn stars, like m quite a few, several. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. It's funny because it's late in the UK as we're doing this right now, and it's quite early. I'm I'm having a whiskey. I'm feeling great, and we're talking about porn stars. So, um, tell me, right? You're sitting there watching it, watching a girl on porn for for months, maybe even years, and then all of a sudden she's in bed with you, and it's like shit. Like now I get to like have the real deal. Like a lot of us feel pressure. Let alone when we've seen a girl, you know, acrobatting, doing all sorts of wild shit. How do you? How did? What was that for you? Damn, it's this is such a loaded question, bro. Oh, I, I mean, listen, like the first, the first girl I met in. Well, I met a couple in the space like early when I first started coming. Name names, name. Well, names. no, I will, I will, I will. <laughs> the first girl I met was Riley, okay. and obviously, like she's she's the. Well, at the time, I thought she was the high, the biggest porn star I was ever going to meet. I was like, yo, mm -hmm. I met Riley Reid. Holy fucking shit. And the first thing you realize about these girls is 
all the shit you've seen on videos doesn't change the fact that when you meet them, they're normal fucking people, bro. They're just exactly. normal. They're just yeah. normal girls. Like when you meet them, you you have this like this. You don't know really what to expect, but the like kid in you, the the the, the, the person that's watched fifty Riley Reed videos. Expects you're gonna walk in, you're gonna go to shake her hand, but you're gonna shake over her head because she's already gonna be on her knees sucking your dick. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like you don't know what to, you don't know what to expect. Are they like that in real life? What do they like? And then you meet them. They're just regular. They're regular girls, bro. Like these mm -hmm. girls could all have office jobs. You would never know in a million years the sh what they do for work. And so once you remove the idea that. Every second is gonna turn into a fucking interracial gangbang <laughs> somehow. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? You're just you're, you're just with a normal. You're just yeah. with a normal girl. Like no, but let's be. Like, I, I know what you're saying is like they're they're real people. They they're not like any other different girl. Not like most of the time. But obviously, there's an element to them that ain't normal. You know what I mean? And that's a good thing. I'm not having a go at that. We celebrate that on the True Jordy YouTube yeah, channel. Yeah, facts, facts. All right. <laughs> um, so so let, let's talk about the what, some of these times where you've been getting down to it with these porn star girls. Was there any moment where you're like, fuck, I better bring that A++ game here. I need a hammer. Yeah, I mean, always. And dude, like, I'm not going to lie. I've been open about uh, performance enhancers, bro. I've never shied against those things. <laughs> I don't give a... Because, listen... When I first I love that. When I first started when I first started fucking with girls in LA and that was when I first started doing these cuz by the way like between you and me since no one else is listening to this <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't always one girl. It wasn't always two girls. It wasn't always three girls. You know what I'm saying? Like I've I been it. in I cuz there is a point where they do turn the switch and they do turn into the girl you've seen the videos of. You oh, know yeah. what I'm saying? And I've been in those scenarios where it's me versus four, me versus five. Like it's happened with girls you fucking know. And it's not even something I normally talk about, but since we're having this conversation, when I first started doing that shit, I was still drinking. I was still going out and partying. And so a lot of these times I would come home and I would be like, kind of, to be honest, I was still getting fucked up and I'd be fucked up and I'd be like, yo, I need to pop a blue chew or some pill right now because I'm fucked up. I'm not gonna be able to do this. Like I have whiskey dick. You know what I'm saying? I gotta figure this <laughs> shit the fuck out. And so, yo, so like yeah, that's that's that that helps, you know, if 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 you're in that shape. But normally, like, here's the thing. Just like every other girl, they are going to unless they're the, a very strange breed of porn star, and I can name a couple names and, I, and speak for them, most of these girls are going to enjoy sex with someone that they've created some sort of chemistry with, just like every other girl on earth. Mm -hmm. And so no matter what any of them say and all, any preconceived notion you have about, oh my God, like, my dick's not going to be big enough or I'm not going to be able to fuck her like these porn stars do and I'm so, I'm so nervous now. They don't enjoy that shit. They don't enjoy... A few of them do. But a lot of them look at their work on set the same way you look at doing your taxes. They don't want to be doing a fucking five-person gangbang. They don't want to. They do it because it's a means to an end for them to make a name for themselves, for them to make money. It's a job, just like any other fucking job to them. 
Shut up. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear this. They love it. No. You're lying. Liar. Here's why it's a good thing. Here's why it's a good thing, Jordy. I'm joking. Because when you meet them and you create a bond with them and they fuck with you as a person, you are able to give them better sex than Mandingo is. <laughs> Now imagine being able to say that. Like, yo, I love that shit, like when, so. when, when, when Lana tells me, okay, actually, let me rephrase that. When Amara tells me, <laughs> because that's her actual fucking name, mm -hmm. that I give her the best dick that she's ever gotten in her life. When she told me that the first five times, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Stop being a moron and telling me shit that, stop lying to me. But when you start to understand the psyche of women, they are emotionally and chemically aroused, unlike men who say, oh, look, tits, hard dick, tits. Absolutely, absolutely, son. You're dropping facts. And so, and so when you realize that women are turned on by your ability to connect with them, relate to them, make them feel loved, make them feel cherished, then you understand why you're able to give girls that have had, you know, 20, 30, whatever amount of dicks, good sex. <laughs> You know what I'm yeah. saying, and so, bro. It, I mean, dude, it's been a learning experience for me too. But I'm I'm a wild I'm a wild dude. People ask me to try to make sense of situations, and I can't do that because there's no sense to be made. I'm just on a roller coaster ride. That's it, dude. You know. You've never judged the women though in the way that a lot of men do, and I'm I'm a bit like you. Like, if you could give me a girl who's had a hundred dicks or one dick, I know which one I'm fucking choosing because I've had a good fucking time. You know what I mean? And I, and that's why me. I think I've always liked that about you. Like, you don't you don't prejudge the way a lot of people do. Um, I, I guess um, why is that? Why is that for you? Why do you not care? If you have um, some sort of religious reasoning or you have some sort of like preconceived mindset about the sanctity of women and what they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to act i completely respect that i completely respect that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that people can feel however they want i always say different strokes for different folks me personally having seen the terrors of this fucking world having seen and by the way done the things that I've done, who the fuck am I to judge someone for who they've had sex with? The amount, bro, I hate saying this. This is not me bragging. This is not me bragging. The amount of bodies I have is a hundred times higher than the amount of body, bodies that Lana Rhodes has. Mm -hmm. Quite fucking literally. Mm -hmm. Bro, I, dude, there were times in my life where I would stick my dick in any fucking thing, dude, without asking any fucking questions. I didn't give a shit. Hundreds and hundreds, bro. <laughs> this girl worked with 20 dudes over the course of a year, later got married and had a husband and, and, only, <laughs> and only was having sex with him. She has maybe three or four bodies outside of fucking porn. These are rookie numbers compared to the bodies that I know of girls that have in LA. I, I understand people's inability to get to the place that I'm talking from because bro, it is kind of fucking nasty. It's nasty shit. And unless you're a little fucked up, it won't make sense to you. For the average American, the average person in the UK who wants to raise a family, they want to do it with this angel of a person, I get that. I get that. 
but I don't live in that world. I don't exist in that place. And so, so who am I to judge someone for, for, for what they've done to make ends meet? It's just not who I am. It's not the kind of person I am. You know what I'm saying? Especially when I've done worse. So you, you've mentioned Lana a few times there. And uh, the way we watched you guys meet on camera was kind of like cute. Like I remember watching it being, because obviously Lana's a beautiful woman. And as your friend, I'm like, yes, son. Like I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for you all the way, you know. But I never thought that anything would come from that video, you know, that birthday present video. And all of a sudden you guys clicked. And I was like, yeah, yeah, for the cameras. Or but this shit was for real what was it like when you were off camera and you were just being regular people how did what what made you guys connect more than you would with another girl she's not actually the normal the the kind of girl i would normally connect with because what's the normal girl you'd connect with just just in so just in this in the they're usually in the mindset of being very uh extroverted they want to talk they want to party they want to do this kind of shit and by the way, the majority of porn stars, I've had little things, not relationships, I didn't date them, but I've had things with other adult girls, as you mentioned. And even those ones, they're very extroverted. They want to party, yeah, fuck yeah, drink, do whatever, right? Whatever the fuck they do. Amara is very different. She is a true introvert. She does not want to see anyone. She wants to work on her own shit. She wants to do her own shit, and she's very, very shy. Almost to a point that she's awkwardly shy. Like, I'm, I'm talking to her, and she doesn't really know how to respond. She's kind of closed off, you know? Um, but the first thing that I noticed about her was that she was, hands down, quite literally, one of the sweetest people that I'd ever met in my entire life, man. Like, like just, just so kind, sweet, and just like just an, a good person, like just a good person. And mm -hmm. it was apparent to me in the first couple times that we hung out that she was just a really nice girl. And and I, I, it was almost like as soon as I started hanging out with her, I hated the fact or the idea that people judged her for what they saw and never got the chance to know who she really was. That upset me so bad and I didn't want to be another example of that. And so as we started to hang out and get to know each other, I realized just how fucking great she was and how sweet and supportive and loyal. I mean, since day one, every, you know, you guys will always love this story, but every football player, you know, <laughs> soccer player, big dogs, bro, big yeah. dogs. Yeah. Like the homies on the big teams, bro. Mm -hmm have been in her DMs. Rappers, big fucking rappers. I wish I could say names. I'm not going to fucking do it. And it's always, yo, look who DM me. And then she just deletes it, deletes it. Like she's not, she's, she's very different than everyone else in this LA circle. Mostly because you can't impress Lana Rhodes with your Lamborghini because she has a nicer Lamborghini than you. <laughs> I like that. You know what I'm saying? And so like, yo, yeah. her ability to be a businesswoman and a crush it on her own side pushes away a lot of that shit where girls are usually turned on by wealth so she's she's just not into the same things that other girls are she doesn't care if you have a hit single she doesn't give a fuck if you're the only thing she cares about is can you be loyal to her can you respect her can you support her that's what she cares about and so that was all very apparent to me right off the bat and i said yo like Dude, I didn't know when I first started talking to her, I was I within a week I was in bed with her and Riley at the same time and I was like, "Yo, this is going to go the same way that this has gone 
every other time. I'm gonna fuck this girl and I'm never gonna, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna put her in a rotation and I'm gonna move on to, you know, whoever else. And it just didn't go like that. I mean, we spent, we started spending more and more time together. And I think, I think, I think that we see a project in each other. I, I, and I, and I, I don't know how I feel about saying this, but I'll just say it. I think that we both see like a dog who's been beaten up a lot. You know what I'm saying? And, and a dog that's, you know, been put through shit that they wish they hadn't and done things that they don't like and don't feel great about and just want to be loved and respected and supported. When you find someone who's willing to reciprocate that forgiveness and that support, it goes a long way. You know what I'm saying? And so it's, it's, um, she's been absolutely incredible. She's been absolutely incredible. And, and, you know, extremely supportive, extreme, just, uh, you know, I've never had to worry about another guy, which is something to be said in LA. She, all she wants to do is be with me. And all she asks is for respect and support. And, you know, obviously I haven't been perfect, bro. You know, I, I you know, I, I, as you know, I don't know if you'd plan on asking about it or what, but I haven't been perfect. Yeah, that was beautiful. Um, but unfortunately, I stopped listening after you said you were in bed with Riley and Lana at the same time. <laughs> um, what the hell happened? I need every detail. <laughs> Bro, as much as I wish this story was going to be great, that threesome did not happen. That that threesome didn't happen. Was- I was going to say, she must be, because they're like friends. They're so very like, good. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're good friends. And Lana's quite, she seems quite possessive over you in a good way. She is. So. She is. She, there's no, we're not, there's no threesomes at all. She's not, she, she, she's, uh, she's down for it, but it would have to be her choice. It would have to be, it would have to be her choosing. And, and, you know, I, it also feels like to me that uh, it feels like one of those threesomes that's actually a trap. Like you do it and then you're f- you're just fucked, Fuck. bro. Yeah. And so, and so I, I probably won't do it. But yeah, that did that didn't happen. I mean, obviously, you know, me and Riley had some things happen in the past, but you know, it's it's uh since since me and since me and Amara met, dude, it's you know, I had obviously that one thing that happened but other than that it's it's been it's just been yeah. me and her. For, for, for those that don't know mike um mike got his dick sucked by some random girl um who, who really was after the clout and and you and i have we've both been victims of that a little bit in the past in different ways you got off lucky um <laughs> but basically um that that was a speed bump for you guys and i really thought that, that was you were fucked but you handled that both of you handled that really well and that was what made me think oh this could last how did you how did you get over that so fast she didn't have that much of a leg to stand on because we were so the relationship was so new you know what i'm saying mm. like it's really hard for a girl to meet a guy especially in LA and for the guy to even for a second be cool with i met you today we're dating tomorrow it's just not how the landscape works here or really anywhere. It's like you have this courting period. You have this talking period. You have, you know, then you have the exclusivity conversation where you're like, okay, you're mine. I'm yours. Nobody else. We just strict. We just hadn't gotten there. I think men and women are so different on that. I guarantee if, if every man watching this right now, like who's had like, you know, a few years under his belt, thought how many girls, if I proposed to them, would they have said yes? Versus how many girls, like, the other way would want to marry you. Like, it's totally lopsided. Women are so relaxed about commitment. 
I don't know what it is. Men f- freak the Bro, fuck out. It scares the shit out of me. It scares the shit out of me, and it has uh, since day one. And and so like as soon as she started talking that way, in a way, that was kind of like my like. I feel like I tried to sabotage the relationship where I was like, "Yeah, yo, if I could just do this, maybe it'll push her away enough that this won't happen or so, or some shit. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. It was a horrible, horrible mistake. Mm-hmm. And um, but luckily, I you know I said to her. After I came back, I talked to her. We hung out a bunch more times, and I said, yo, I made a really bad mistake. I'm really, really sorry. And I promise you, I looked in her eyes, and I said, yo, I promise you, with everything in me, that this will never, ever happen again. I was like, I can't say that we're not going to break up. I can't say that we're going to get married and have this great love story. I don't know what's going to happen. But as long as I'm dating you... You will never have to worry about me talking to or or having any kind of sexual relationship with another woman. And I and I truly do stand by that. I truly mean that. And like like I said, like if I had that desire and it was something I wanted, I would have a conversation about us breaking up before I did that because that sucked, bro. It felt horrible. It made me upset with myself. It fucking fucked her mm. up and it just like if you're watching this, if you're still watching this, don't fucking cheat. Don't cheat, dude. That is, that's the worst. I do believe the reason we were able to walk past it was because we weren't officially in a relationship yet. Yeah. What, what I want to do is give Lana a bit of credit because as an outsider looking in, um, especially as a, a YouTuber, like I'm in a similar situation to yourself, having a supportive relationship, especially someone who has the clout that Lorna has, let's not kid myself. The fact that she took that photograph and posted your book up with her, I was like... No, 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 dude. What a she's legend. On the next, she's on the next level, bro. She's a... Oh, man. Like, honestly, she... Um, she's so fucking supportive. It's crazy. She's never asked for anything. I mean, I think, I, I think, you know, because obviously, you know how the kids love to talk, bro. It's been, ever since she's come around, it's been Lana for views and this and that. Like, all the, you know, all the shit that obviously people deal with when, when they collaborate on the platform. It's like using this and using that. But I think, uh, I think she's, I think the crossover that we've created in our relationship has benefited the both of us tremendously dude it's changed the game and i want to say porn stars should be thanking her like so much because the word porn star is a dirty word to many people and then all of a sudden you've got logan paul one of the biggest youtubers in the fucking world clearly Laying on the fact that his his best friend's girlfriend is huge on views. And he's putting her in his fucking titles. He did want to date, in fact, right? So it, it, it's it's changing, like, I guess YouTubers being seen as this clean little kiddie thing. And porn stars being seen as this dirty thing. Like, all of a sudden, like, they're becoming mainstream because of people like Lana. She's changing it. For sure. And, and, and yeah. listen, like, we're still not there all the way. And I do want to, I do want to... Uh, greatly attribute and or attribute and and give thanks to riley uh for for doing it as well because logan simply called riley and riley made it happen riley mm-hmm. is a uh is probably that industry's greatest gift that they've ever been given in terms of the ability to push the genre into an accepted place yeah. The, the gift that keeps on giving, Riley. Incredible. She's the, she is such a great person, such a good person, and, you know, she's obviously done wonders for, for bringing it to mainstream. Obviously, Adam and Lena had the first true YouTube 
porn relationship. The reason Shout why out Adam twenty two. Yep, and Lena the plug. The reason why mine is a little bit different and doesn't do as much of the heavy lifting as someone else will eventually is because she's retired. And yeah, so exactly. since she's since she's I I love the idea of thinking of myself as like this warrior who is able to overlook anything. But I would not be able to overlook the fact that my girlfriend was currently doing pornography. I, 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 I it, call it a weakness in me. Call it I don't know what you want to call it. I can't. I would not be able to deal with that. And I think a lot of people watching this would could understand. Okay. The fact that she used to do it, and this is nothing against current workers or their ability to have relationships. This is just me speaking for myself. The fact that she used to do it is what makes me comfortable enough to have a relationship with her and so yeah i mean she's she's the best dude she's she's incredible she's mad at me right now for something but she's uh <laughs> she's always dude i'm no i gotta be the worst person to fucking because because li listen she's <laughs> an funny bro she's an introvert and all she wants is me her maybe a couple kids a couple lamborghinis a really yeah. big ass house she doesn't even mind paying for all of it she's basically like yo you don't even have to do anything just come simp for me and i'll fucking pay everything <laughs> obviously i'm not gonna obviously i'm not gonna do that but since she's such an introvert she naturally has a problem with my lifestyle which is the exact opposite and mm -hmm. so every girl that dms me which is a lot every girl that comments every girl that you know, I'm friends with from the past, I'm always fighting this battle to whether or not I want to respond because I'm a nice person who just likes to talk to people. But she looks at every single girl that I talk to from my past as me trying to keep a bridge with them so that I can fuck them down the line. Do you know what I'm saying? And you know, Maybe she's right. I'm not saying she's right, but the, maybe some girls. <laughs> oh, no, no, no that's not what I meant. Let back me, up, back let up. me just Get back out it of up. That <laughs> right now. What I'm saying is maybe her looking at the situation like that is right, and maybe other girls who look at the situation like that maybe that's maybe they're right. Maybe maybe they do see it as that. But as far as I'm concerned, the only reason I have any comment, and it's very light. I don't. I rarely like any pictures anymore. I rarely do any of that. But any, the only reason I'm ever talking to anybody is because, yo, there's a lot of girls out there that I'm genuinely friends with. Okay, so can I ask you the question? You said she'd be happy settling down, a couple of kids, a couple of Lamborghinis, all that good stuff. Do you see that as a real, like, serious possibility for you guys? I don't see it as a possibility, but I don't not see it as a possibility do you understand what i'm does saying it, so does it feel like a dream almost like it's almost not real 100 here here's yeah. why and this is the thing that we've kind of had to like deal with is because she she wants that she really wants that she's she wants that tomorrow yeah and <laughs> yeah. and she's 23 and i'm like yo trust me slow the fuck down dude like she already owns houses everywhere like she's got everything all set up the thing about me right now is and it, it sucks because I'm I'm 35, bro. But I am on a fucking mission right now, dude. Like to just mm. to just fucking do everything. Like book book's gonna become a movie. Then that it's it. Like I have a million things going on, and so like I don't have the time, unfortunately, right now, to sit back, count money, and relax. Like it's just not a luxury that I have, nor is it a luxury that I want right this second. You're still in second gear. Like you're just getting That's started. That's it. Right That's now. it, bro. Yeah. Like, like once the movie's done and like we can, we really can sit back and be like, "Yo, we've done it." 
different story. And 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 by the way, also like, I'm not a believer in having those kind of conversations six months into a relationship. Absolutely. Like it's yeah. it's like yo, my sister and her boyfriend, or my sister, my little sister and her current husband dated for fucking what seven years before he popped yeah. the question same, you, you same. can fuck things up by actually rushing it like a potential like a relationship that has real potential letting it go and letting it grow and that and having these wild experiences traveling together all that if you just settle down too quick it can almost fuck it early can't it oh yeah absolutely and that's what i've been t and that's what and we've dealt with a lot of that stuff because of the kind of pressure that she kind of puts on it sometimes to like push the relationship along oh they're all mate they're always doing it all of them even porn stars right honestly oh yeah uh, no abs absolutely dude they girl, girls are infamous for it bro they want to know exactly when it starts with a toothbrush in the bathroom that's where it starts a hundred percent oh uh, yeah honest truth right i don't know I, you might not be able to answer this because i know it's your own relationship but i i, I wanted to know this do you love her yeah, I do. I do. I, I, I mean, at first I, I was, um, she pushed for that word so early Yeah. and started using it. And that word to me, it has such weight. Like, I, like my family, when I was growing up, we weren't the kind of family that just said that. Like we would only say, I love you. If somebody was getting on a flight or going in for surgery, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> And so I love that. the fact that she, the fact that she kind of th throws it around a little bit more was, I, mm. I couldn't relate and I wouldn't use it. But eventually when I realized the kind of person that she was and, 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 and how great she is for me and to me and, and, and vice versa and the relationship that we have and what, what grew out of it, I couldn't deny it anymore. And so eventually, exactly. you know, it's, it, 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 um, like was it was it like one of those relationships that was just like crazy love at first sight no, it was it really wasn't i can honestly say that but what we've grown into and i i like that i like the idea that we grew into it we we were mm -hmm. kind of like friends first and then it kind of grew into it and so now yeah without a shadow of a doubt i i love her i mean she's 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 incredible bro she's incredible i'm happy for you man i'm really happy for you thank you dude. yeah i watch your little vlogs and i'm like there's Mike. I'm happy for this guy. He's living <laughs> my dream. <laughs> Dude. Um, I've, got, I've got a few more questions, bro. Um, you, you be, you're becoming quite a wealthy man now. Money's going to be coming to you. I wondered if you're finding yourself becoming a little bit more materialistic. No. Really? Nope. Not at all. Not, not, not yet. And yeah. I, don't know, I don't know when it'll start. I have... Adam gave me no jumper shorts about... Um, probably a year ago i wear them every day i have them on right now i i, I wear no jumper shorts every day i have one pair of yeezys i have yeah. a, a maverick shirt that got given to me for free i i've been in la i i, I said it on a podcast if i wanted to get the matching lambo that lana has i could buy it right fucking now cash i don't i don't i, I don't know what it is i don't know why because most businessmen like yourself you're a bit of a businessman now they they are driven by that but you seem to be driven more by the the actual game itself rather than the outcome. Yeah, for sure. And also, I think that the strongest businessmen, which, which is what I am deep down, understand the power of cash on hand. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, I've learned that. I've learned that recently. You know what I'm saying? And so like the last thing I want to do is drive up to a meeting with a couple venture capital guys 
and I pull up in a brand new V10 Lamborghini and they say, yo, we have the next Google. If you have 500 to put up front today or a million to put up front today, you could buy a thousand Lamborghinis in six months or a year and me to be like, oh shit, I spent it, I spent, you know, a good chunk of my money on a fucking car. That was me a year ago, just to be clear. Last question for you, Mike. And I've really enjoyed this, mate. So thanks again for your time. How would you like to be remembered? I hate, I hate using this answer because it it it's it seems like something someone who so many people have said this, but I there's nothing that makes me feel as good as knowing that I made a difference. That I made some sort of impact. Hoarding money into a bank account, buying cars, having the most views on YouTube. Because I, I play in that, if things go right, I could play in that 7 million view department. I have one. 3 million here, whatever. It's great. It's fucking amazing, dude. It feels nice. <laughs> it doesn't feel as nice as the message I get from some kid that says, I'm 17. I watched the Impulsive episode yesterday. And I didn't go pick up heroin today because I don't want to go down this road any further. I want to stop and I want to make something of my fucking life. And the amount of times that I've literally like broken down crying off of the messages people have sent me. I don't break down crying when my publisher says, yo, the book sold 50,000 fucking copies in the first three. That doesn't matter to me. I, I love that. I'm, I'm fucking happy. And the reason why that does matter is because of the message that's in the fifth vital. And so that really makes me happy, actually. But when it's views or money and that kind of shit, it doesn't satisfy me. The thing that satisfies me is knowing that someone's life is better as a result of me being here. And so if my legacy can only be that I made an impact on one person or a thousand people or a hundred thousand people or a million people and I made their lives more livable and made them feel okay and made them feel happier, made them feel like they could make something out of a shitty situation, then I've done every single fucking thing that I was put on the planet to do. And I could go and I could rest easy, bro. And the day this book went out, I rested, I, I slept better that fucking night than I ever have, bro. Because I know that people are reading it and it's making them feel like they're gonna be okay. And that is the legacy that I wanna fucking leave. And you know what it is, mate? From the minute I fucking met you, we've got on fantastically well because my motivation and your motivation are exactly the same. Yeah. And, uh, and you feel like you're putting together a body of work that's going to help people over a period of time and views are just bullshit. It's, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. Uh, making a difference is, is what it's all about. So you've definitely done that. And um, I credit you, mate. I think you've got your priorities right in life. And uh, I wish you all the fucking success in the world, mate. Honestly. Thank you, brother. I appreciate um, you having me on. And obviously, priorities are right. Still not perfect. Working at it every single day. And, um, you know, who, who knows where the where the journey goes, where the road yeah. leads for, for either of us. But, um, you know, obviously, the fifth vital on Amazon. I'm sure Jordy will get the link in there somewhere for you. And, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's it's, I mean, listen, we didn't really talk much about the book. And we'll do it next time. Um, the process has been crazy. It's, it's a really insane process and it has been nuts to see the feedback and how 
many people have opened that book and not closed it until it was done. One sitting, mm. five hours, six hours, eight hours, whatever, and had some sort of life. Like, I didn't think he was going to do that. I knew it was a great story, but I didn't think it was going to do that. So You're a good writer, by the way. Like, uh, yeah, I'm, I was impressed. I was like, because I could tell this is you. Yeah. I can tell it's you. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's gritty shit, and um, I appreciate that. But yeah, grab the fifth vital on Amazon, and um, that's pretty much it, dude. And I appreciate you having me on. I fucking love you, dude. And uh, I'm, I, I, I'll come back on whenever you want. We got to get you on Impulsive. I know people want to see that shit, bro. Yeah, fuck yeah. Um, as soon as this lockdown shit is lifted, I'll be over there, mate, because I need to get out of this country. <laughs> <laughs> so don't forget to check out the fifth vital on Amazon. The link is in the description below. Thanks again to Mike. Go and check out his channel. Don't forget, clocked in, all of that. I'm, mate, I'm a subscriber. You got me. I love you. Um, hit the like button, subscribe to the True Geordie YouTube channel. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you later.